This is Theory of Change. I'm Matthew Sheffield. A lot of people have heard of the Southern strategy, the long-term political plan of early American conservatives to win presidential elections by getting the votes of white people who lived in the Southeast. Many historians and political scientists have written about the Southern strategy over the years, but what still isn't widely known is how the Republican Party itself changed as it focused so heavily on winning over white Southern Protestants. From its very beginnings, the Republican Party up until that point was a Northern Yankee party for city dwellers, industrial workers, and university professors and farm workers. But that's not who votes for Republicans nowadays. The huge influence of Southern Protestant culture played a big role in how the GOP changed. What's interesting also is how American Christianity itself has, at least in many ways, been remade in the image of Southern white evangelicalism. So joining me today to talk about all this is Angie Maxwell. She's an associate professor of political science at the University of Arkansas. And she's also the author of The Long Southern Strategy, How Chasing White Voters in the South Changed American Politics. Thanks so much for being with me today, Angie. Thank you for having me. All right. Well, so there's a lot to cover here. Your book is really kind of, I think, groundbreaking in a lot of ways because it looks at the Southern strategy from kind of the opposite direction. So a lot of people have written about the Southern strategy, but they haven't written about this aspect that you did in yours. Why, why do you think that that is the case? Well, I guess the best way to explain it is to say, I feel like many people have written about what I would call like the short Southern strategy. There's, there's two answers to this. First is this, the short Southern strategy. So it's kind of the story we have in our heads that Barry Goldwater and Richard Nixon in the 60s tried to capitalize on Southern white voters who were frustrated with the direction of their National Democratic Party, particularly on issues related to civil rights, and with some effort by Republicans could be brought into the Republican fold. And then, of course, we say, well, Nixon wins the South, and there we have it, right? The short Southern strategy, playing to these kind of aggrieved Southern whites. But I started to think about what a longer game it has been, because even though Nixon wins the South in 68 and 72, the South completely goes back to blue for native son Jimmy Carter, 10 of 11 states. And Republicans have to figure out, once again, do they continue to try to make those investments? Was it a temporary gain or was it something that was going to kind of be the future of their party and a a new base? And that kind of back and forth actually happens over the course of about 40 years. And so it's a two steps forward, kind of one step back dynamic. And so I wanted to see the Southern strategy in this longer perspective, right? That's the first way that it's different. And Secondly, is I was looking at not just the policy positions that Republicans took to win these Southern white voters, but also the style of politics that they adopted. The one party political system that had dominated the South for most of its history gave rise to a really distinct type of politics. And in order to really convert those diehard Southern Democrats to the Republican Party, you were going to have to do more than just take certain policy positions, you were going to have to kind of embrace that white southernness. And so the book's about both aspects of that effort. 
Uh-huh. And a lot of it, as you said, you, you were talking about aggrieved Southerners, aggrieved in many cases about, but not only, but this idea, there was this idea very common in the South after the Civil War that became a term, the, the lost cause. How much of that do you think was playing a role in, in white Southern politics uh, uh, well, before the, lost, the Southern strategy? Sure. Well, the lost cause kind of mentality is, I guess the best way that I always think of it personally is it was kind of an alibi. It was kind of a story that white Southerners told themselves after the war to deal with their grief and to deal with their resentment over reconstruction and to make somehow the failed effort seem somewhat noble and maybe not as much about maintaining slavery, right? So it's a little bit of a coded kind of mask for what was really going on. And kind of speaking in those kind of coded terms was definitely part of the Southern strategy and something that white Southerners would have been used to. The famous examples about like law and order, right? Under Nixon, that phrase, meaning one thing kind of to white Southern audiences while not being explicitly direct about what it's about, right? And so we see sometimes just the need to tell a story that things are okay or we've moved past racism or structural racism isn't still a problem or the war effort was about heritage, right? And protecting a way of life. That kind of, that kind of those stories are something that's very common in Southern white culture. Yeah. And, and we'll get into more of that later in sure. the discussion here. But so so basically, just to set the, the time frame that we're talking about here, American conservatism is a pretty young phenomenon in historical sense and political sense. It, it was a collection of loosely organized people that were kind of affiliated with industrialists who decided they didn't like Frank, Franklin Roosevelt. That's where it kind of grew out of in the beginning and as a political movement, at least. And then it wasn't a foregone conclusion that they were going to be Republicans. And do you, so let's, do you want to talk about that a little bit? What are some of the other party strategies that people explored in the very early beginnings? Well, I guess I would say that I don't know if American conservatism is, is relatively young. I think maybe American conservatism was kind of default and American progressivism is what was young. And when progressivism or kind of modern American presidents like Roosevelt that start to make that job, the executive, so much larger, expand its scope and capacity, expand the role of government. When that happens, there is a need to kind of define what the objection to that is, right? What is the objection to government creating all of the social programs and the infrastructure that it created to try to put a, basically put a floor underneath the economy during and after the Great Depression? And that could have gone in a couple of different ways if FDR's efforts had, if he had not been a you know four-term or three-and-a-little-bit term president, perhaps it would have been kind of an anomaly, right? This big government mm -hmm. effort was for the purpose of getting us out of the Great Depression. But yeah. it becomes something that in the South, financially, the region becomes very highly dependent on that kind of federal income. And that sets up a really different relationship between the states and the federal government. And I mm -hmm. think conservatism was started to 
embrace this concept of state autonomy and define itself that way. And that just kind of happened to work perfectly in terms of protecting Jim Crow. Does that make sense? It's not mm -hmm. always what state rights, states rights was about, but it dovetailed pretty nicely with kind of a growing American conservatism. Yeah. As a, as a just purely party phenomenon, you sure. know, we had, we had, uh, you could argue that the Democratic Party before Roosevelt was more conservative than the Republican Party. Oh, absolutely. So, and and like in the early days of conservatism, American conservatism, mid 20th century, there were a lot of people who they identified as Democrats more and they were conservative and they, they were not going to be Republican. And yeah, then there were other parties too. Yeah, I was talking, I'm glad you say that because when I said that I feel like American conservatism is not you know, young, it's kind of been the default. I don't I don't tie it to one party historically. Mm -hmm. I think Southern Democrats were as conservative as you as you come. Their national party under FDR and then under Truman started to shift. The national party under those presidents, Southern Democrats were not shifting. In fact, they were not shifting. Um they were so staunch in that conservative American conservatism that they left you know, in 1948 and walked out and decided to run their own candidate and that for president in the form of Strom Thurmond. So what we didn't know in the 1950s, if you look at middle of the 20th century, like you said, is we didn't know which party was going to go which way. So if you look at the platforms in the 50s from the national parties on things like civil rights, they're almost identical. And you, you kind of didn't know the National Democratic Party seemed like it was moving in a little baby steps in a pro-civil rights direction. But the Southern Democratic Party was the opposite. The mm -hmm. National Republican Party was also, had been, at least rhetorically, kind of pro-civil rights, but there was a growing conservatism that was kind of anti-labor, Midwestern, rural America that was starting to push back in that party. And what's, what's hard, I think, as I look back on it, with the advantage of hindsight, is... It's a shame that one party, that the parties had to go in opposite directions on these issues, right? Who says one party has to be the champion of civil rights in the 60s and 70s, and one has to be the party is effectively at times trying to limit some of, the, some of that change. Um, it's a shame that we couldn't have debated over like the best way, right, to deal with structural inequities based on race. A racial uplift, because there's definitely tons of debate you have on what policies do work and help, right? It's a shame we couldn't have done that, as opposed to really making it a polarized partisan issue. And I think there were a lot of people in both parties that disagreed with the way their party went. We know that to be sure, to be true. Yeah, and the conservatives eventually decided that they were going to try to take over the Republican Party, but. It was a actually to some degree n not that difficult for them because they were so well organized. National Review was founded in 1955, and Barry Goldwater got the Republican nomination. Not even ten years after that, and, uh, and of course, National Review wasn't the the only aspect of of American conservatism. But that's that's a pretty rapid ascent within one party. And one of the interesting things about that is that they. The early conservatives, actually, a lot of them were former communists themselves, and they actually copied a lot of Stalinist 
political tactics. That's something that isn't widely known and use them as a way of organizing within the Republican Party. So like they would send people into Republican meetings and then they would have different, they'd have like a group of people who would pretend not to know each other and then they would cheer each other oh. on. In but that is sections. definitely a book that you should write because I'm not <laughs> aware of that. Yeah. I will say this, the conservative impulse within the Republican Party was really strong going into the 1950s. It just, it just, it had trouble kind of breaking apart with kind of establishment East and West Coast Republicans, but it did not like big government. It was very concerned about labor, right? Did not, you know, there was a big, did not like unions, was really concerned about communist infiltration and in the and then and then you know and this is interesting but conservatives in the republican party really really didn't want eisenhower on the ticket you know true. I, they did not they really wanted taft they really did from ohio and they were devastated because eisenhower kind of came on late in the convention and they felt tricked they felt like it was kind of unfair how it happened and that really motivated them to get organized. Taft unfortunately died of cancer like a year or two later. And so his part of the story kind of fades, but they're so angry that he gets robbed of the nomination in 52 that they really mm -hmm. do start organizing. And they start for and they start looking for how can we grow this conservative part of the part of the Republican Party? How do we do it? And they start clubs throughout the South where they start trying to recruit people. They look at Faubus, actually. Clarence Mannion looks at Faubus after 1956, the governor who- well, Do you want to talk about both who Clarence Mannion was and, and, and Orville Faubus? For those who don't know who they are, can you Sure, it was just a Republican operative and a, he was very involved in kind of strategizing for the party. And a talk a radio leader. host. And a radio host, so he had access to audiences, which is actually a really important point. And they just, they know their numbers. They know they do not have enough. So how can they grow that base within the Republican Party? They start seeing, do they have some alliances with some very upset white Southerners who, not all white Southerners, it's never all, who really feel kind of in a partisan purgatory when the National Democratic Party starts really moving in kind of a more pro-civil rights direction. They think, can we be, can we build kind of an alliance here? And they look at Faubus, like I said, as this like pro-states rights governor, but then Barry Goldwater, who takes a really hard stand against labor unions and organizing, criticizes Eisenhower for it. And he's this young senator who's very charismatic, they feel like, and so they kind of abandon the Faubus idea and they really start looking Goldwater. They want him to run in um, in 60, but some of those conservatives, but that he he refuses, just thinks it's not a good idea. And of course, they so they finally secure, like you said, in a, you know, kind of a 10-year process to get their party's nomination. And that is a heated convention in 64, with about half the Republican Party being very upset that Goldwater's the nominee, and the other half having organized for 10 years, being overjoyed. Yeah, there, there were some echoes of that 
of that moment in the 2016 Republican National Convention sure. with Donald Trump, where there were just a lot of Republicans who didn't want him. And people were claiming they were going to try to stage a walkout strategy. And sure. And, you know, that's a really important point, because it's always important to remember that nominees, especially in contested years, are rarely unanimous. So when we talk about this other strategy, we sometimes say, well, the Republicans all decided to go play up the anti-civil rights thing. It's actually a fraction of the Republican Party that were pushing for a nominee for a lot of different reasons. And some strategists thought Goldwater's vote against the 1964 Civil Rights Act could maybe win them over some voters in the South and break the Democratic stronghold there. The electoral map does not mean that everyone that supported Goldwater in the Republican Party we're supporting him for that same reason. Does that make sense? So it's like, it's always important to me to remember that it's easy for us to see it in hindsight, but on the ground, Goldwater meant different things to different people. And there were conservatives, conservatism didn't equal just anti-civil rights, right? Mm -hmm. In any way, shape or form. Yeah. And I, I never want to make it sound like that because I don't, I don't think that would be true. Yeah. So, I mean, in, and even before though, that, Goldwater had secured a nomination. There were a few different Republican consultants and conservative election advisors who were talking about this idea that that there are votes to be had among white Southerners. And, and they had written some books about that and white papers. Did you, did you want to talk briefly about just some of those people like Kevin Phillips? or? Yeah, absolutely. Well, Kevin Phillips writes after Goldwater's you know, campaign, um, the most famous book, kind of the emerging Republican majority. Now, this seems so common sense to us in 2021, but mm -hmm. you have to recognize what a block the South had been for the Democratic Party. I mean, Republicans had such a narrow path to electoral victory. They did not have, well, we might flip Georgia or North Carolina or Texas. They, it was just Democrat, right? And so it really limited your, 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 your choices when you're putting together an electoral strategy. So what happens is when the National Democratic Party starts kind of embracing this more pro-civil rights stance, there are strategists, one of the other famous ones, Lee Atwater, who realizes the South is ripe for some two-party competition because there was enough disaffected people. And he also knew and this is very important, that they did not have a two-party infrastructure in most places in the South. And that building from the bottom up was going to be really difficult if they could get Southerners to at least split ticket and vote for a Republican conservative presidential candidate, even if they did not have a strong, robust Republican Party to launch having a, you know, growing a Republican Party in the South. And so yeah. they tried to they tried to get Southerners to say, look, you have no choice, right, in this one. Goldwater's the only one that voted against the Civil Rights Act that's running. If you vote for, you know, Lyndon Johnson, you will get the Voting Rights Act of 1965. You will enfranchise, you know, African Americans in pockets of the South for, for whom and for many white leaders that was very threatening based on the numbers. Right. So they really tried to sound like it was a one off. They were building something. Yeah. So Lee Atwater, that strategy, he really pushed and he's going to train a whole bunch of people. Strom Thurmond, 
just so you know, Lee Atwater worked in South Carolina politics and Strom Thurmond was the first Southern politician in 1964. He immediately switched parties. So not just supported Goldwater and stumped for him, which he did, but switched his official label from Democrat to Republican. That's how definitive and influential the kind of South Carolina contingency of all of this was. Yeah. And there were other people out there like uh, Morton Blackwell, it's another example who was who was very big on that. And then briefly, and he's not mentioned a lot in your book, but uh, William F. Buckley, he was the son of a Texas oil baron and uh, he moved to Connecticut. People nowadays aren't remembering him for his more Southern roots, but he was somebody who not only was his family was from the South, but he also practiced a Southern mode of politics, a rhetorical style that was very pugilistic. There was, in fact, one famous moment where he threatened to punch Gore Vidal, the uh, (laughs) left-wing author in the face, called him an offensive term for a, a gay man. And that's, in many ways, he sort of set the template for a lot of what came afterward, even though he himself kind of calmed down as he got older. So, yeah. So, I mean, so we've, you know, we've, what we talked about so far, that's, these are some things that a lot of people know, but there are other aspects about the Southern strategy. And that's what a huge part of your book is about. And so not just race or partisanship, but also a lot of what happened to the Southern white vote had to do with opposing feminism and and women's rights. And so let's maybe talk about that. I think uh, the key figure there is uh, Phyllis Schlafly, who was not a Southerner. Um, She was not. Well, I guess the best place to kind of start with that is just to say that after 1976 election, when Jimmy Carter, of course, native son, the South goes back to blue. Republican strategists at that point are are like we do every postmortem, right, on elections. What do we do wrong? Have we lost the South because of Watergate, right? After Nixon, was that a fluke? Do we double down on these efforts? Do we not? And the Republican Party has always been very advanced in terms of its polling early on, and not just horse race polling, who will win, the kind of deep psychological dives. And Reagan, one of Reagan's pollsters and strategists, Richard Worthen, you know, does a big poll of American women, it's like 40,000 American women, because women were ter- starting to turn out in higher and higher numbers in election cycles. And he says, categorizes these women into 64 types and gives them names like Helen's and Betty's. And he's trying to just do an analysis, like what motivates them to vote. And he finds a strong contingency of these anti-equal rights amendments, supportive of traditional gender roles, white women, particularly in the South. And so if they're going to make inroads in the South, they're going to restore, repave those inroads they'd made with Nixon and Goldwater. They felt like adding that um, particularly in a moment when it's not that race, you know, racial issues are always significant in elections, but the urgency and intensity right after in the middle of the civil rights movement is just a very different phenomenon than when you're kind of a decade beyond that. Right. And so the Equal Rights Amendment and its passage was the hot topic, the anti-ERA movement which Schlafly is seen as the figurehead of and really launched. And, and we're talking in the 1970s here. just Right. Yeah. So uh-huh. the equal rights, the first 12 months 
of the Equal Rights Amendment ratified by over 30 states. It just looks like a done deal. It's just going to sail. And then all of a sudden, it really stops in its tracks. And Phyllis Schlafly organizes this anti-ERA movement, which can tell women that the, the ERA is ratified, that it's going to force them to work. It tells them it's going to force them to put their children in government daycare. It says that men won't have to pay child support anymore. And it says men can use women's restrooms. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes. And it says that it also told stay-at-home women or um, homemakers that feminists judged them and that feminism was not choice. Feminism was you must adopt the lifestyle of a working woman, right? And Schlafly also partnered with religious organizations. Most notably, she worked with some counterparts in the Mormon church to help kill the amendment in Utah, specifically. She worked with Lottie Beth Hobbs, who was a woman who was part of the Southern Baptist Convention, kind of a leader there, an author, to help organize women in the Southern Baptist Church to kind of rally against the Equal Rights Amendment. A lot of times in the South, even though Schlafly's national organization didn't say this, but a lot of times in the South, these anti-ERA campaigns kind of dovetailed with anti-civil rights and anti-integration efforts. So in Georgia, for example, there were demonstrations where women shouted, we don't want to desexagrate, right? Kind of merging the two things and saying there's too much change too fast, right? So it does, it, the ERA, the anti-ERA campaign has a pretty, has a pretty big influence on politicizing Southern white women and getting them to the polls. Now, this what's important to note is in 1980, when Ronald Reagan gets the Republican nomination, the Republican Party then drops the Equal Rights Amendment from its platform for the first time in 40 years. They were actually the party that had it on their platform first. And this was to the great devastation of a lot of Republican feminists who just had no idea the party was going kind of would abandon their efforts. That's how powerful Schlafly's organizing was. It's important to note, too, that that ERA, you know, fails in in the South and loses its, its momentum because of a lot of those defeats. There was also the infamous 1977 National Women's Convention in Houston, which Phyllis Schlafly organized a counter convention. And the reason that's important, and there's, there's a great book on it called Divided We Stand by Marjorie Spruill that just came out in, a few years ago. But the reason it's important is because there were Republican politicians paying attention to that convention because there were so many American women that went. And Phyllis Schlafly started using the slogan, family values. And there were Republican strategists who go, whoa, that's hitting a nerve. That's tapping into something that's really important. We know from polling data after the 1980 election, how significant the anti-ERA stance of the Republican Party and feeling and those sentiments was a major driver for Southern white women who voted for Reagan. Mm-hmm. He increased his share among them in 1984 too. So that helped, you know, the Republicans recapture, recapture the South. Yeah, that and that that meme, the family values idea that's 
that is even now something that you see in Republican messaging. In fact, there's a, a large conference of, of religious right people every year called the, the Values Voter mm-hmm. Conference. And, and it all goes back to that particular moment. And actually, that's that's a kind of a good segue to the next aspect of, of what we're talking about here, the aspect of religion. And the, your, uh, the introduction of your book starts off with a quote, which I think is, is very illustrative. It's from a historian named Glenn Feldman. He said, the South did not become Republican so much as the Republican Party became Southern. And I, that was, I thought that was a great way to start off your book. And then a lot of that does come into religion and the aspect of anti-feminism hooks into that also. Because in the South, the local Protestant churches are, and even to a, to a large degree now, but certainly much more in the mid-20th century and earlier, they were the hub of the community, right? They absolutely were. So in parts of rural and particularly small town south, the church was kind of the central organizing institution of the community, much in the same way the African-American church would do the same in the south among that, among that community. And so there was something, there's something very specific about just like Jim Crow was such an institution for so long in the South, segregation, the church, if anything, could rival it in its defining the region and its kind of way of life, it would be, it would be the church. And so if you really want to kind of knock out punch of those Southern voters is to find a way to reach them at the pews, which is exactly what the Republican Party did. I mean, after Reagan and then, of course, George H.W. Bush, another native son, right, of the South, Bill Clinton, he does not carry the whole South. It's not like a reversal the way it happened with Carter. But he does win several Southern states and he starts to pick up some gains in others and and even among, among religious voters in the beginning. The Republican Party really strategically trying to look at what, what part of the Southern electorate doesn't kind of show up, right? And there were evangelicals, particularly white evangelicals in the South that did not concern themselves with like kind of worldly affairs, particularly Southern evangelical white women. They kind of left that to the politicians and so on. And so it's convincing those people that if they that they have kind of a moral obligation to participate and to vote. And that's an effort that starts in the 80s and continues even to this day. So it, I would say it's pretty solidified now. Churches passed out voter guides, right? Politi- Republican politicians started attending like the Southern Baptist Convention or sending a message and a note and really started going to some of these large gatherings, Southern evangelicals. And that combination of hitting kind of white racial angst, which manifests in different ways in different decades and traditional kind of gender roles and evangelical kind of Christian nationalism. Mm -hmm. Um, Those components, they do not get you all Southern voters, but they get you enough to win. Yeah. Let's maybe circle back the idea that of Christian nationalism. That's something that wasn't a thing in the South to some degree after the famous Scopes monkey trial. A lot of a lot of Southerners decided that, well, you know what? We can't teach, uh, we can't stop evolution in schools. So 
that reminds us of the idea that Jesus's kingdom is not of this world. And so let's take our focus inward. Let's take our focus on converting people and let's do that. But that changed. And especially with the Southern Baptist Convention, you want to talk about that a little sure. bit? Sure, Absolutely. And you get into scopes, which my the book I wrote before this one, which is called The Indicted Sow, mm-hmm. um, Public Criticism, Southern Inferiority and the Politics of Whiteness, is about moments in the South's history where there was such intense public criticism of the region. What happens to that community after the fact? Mm-hmm. Um, Do you want to very briefly just talk about what the Scopes trial was just for those sure, who haven't absolutely. heard about it? And then maybe we'll, we'll talk to the I'll try to be super brief, but okay. 1925 Scopes trial, the year prior, the Tennessee legislature had passed something called the Butler Act, which banned the teaching of evolution in public schools. This was the result of a lot of generational angst about children that were kind of embracing the roaring 20s and kind of throwing off their parents like Victorian kind of values and maybe not leaving and leaving the church. And it's the growth of higher education. And so they said, this is happening because they're going to college or this is happening because they're starting to teach all this fancy new science, right? This is when we get zoology and botany and all these specialties. And so there just becomes kind of a belief that if you're going to teach things like the theory of evolution, that somehow teaching that is what was causing students or young people to then question a hierarchical, spiritual, religious faith. And parents always, you know, parents get upset about what their kids are being taught sometimes when generations shift. So they, when they banned that, the ACLU decided to file a lawsuit. They looked for, they advertised for people who wanted to test the law. John Scopes was a football coach and science teacher at Ray County, Dayton, Tennessee. And he, they decided him alongside with a couple of other businessmen in town decided to be great publicity for the town and that they could turn it into kind of events. They'd make some money off of people coming to watch this great trial. Right. They got a lot more than they bargained for. It was an absolute media circus. It was the first major trial that was covered live on the radio. People could listen to. We laid telegraph wire across the like across the country to be able to do that. The railroads expanded because the number of people coming to Dayton, Tennessee was on the front page of the London Times, the Los Angeles Times, everywhere for just days and days and days of the trial. And it's because the famous, the most famous defense attorney of of his generation, Clarence Darrow, was representing, decided to go down there and represent Scopes and William Jennings Bryan, three-time candidate for president and former secretary of state under Woodrow Wilson. And a Democrat, yeah. And a Democrat decides to show up and help the prosecution. And so you have these two great orators and giants in their respective professions in this tiny little town. And the whole world paid attention. And Darrow put Brian, William James Brian, on the stand and started questioning him about his literalist interpretation of the Bible. And through the grueling testimony and questioning, Brian kind of cracked slightly and kind of admitted that the seven days of creation, those could be time periods, right? And and Darrow jumps on it. And it's pretty devastating to Brian. He intended to make a giant closing speech and redeem himself, but 
Darrow moved for an immediate verdict, which mm -hmm. made closing speeches not happen. Two days later, two, three days later, Brian dies and Dayton to just go sleep and doesn't wake up. And so this little thing <laughs> becomes this giant media event. And yeah. what it does is it humiliated fundamentalists because yeah. the media coverage of it was so eviscerating. Yeah. yeah. And, and then the fascinating thing about it that is to me is that the, a lot of people saw the trial through the coverage, the media coverage of H.L. Mencken, who was a columnist, one of the very first syndicated columnists. And the interesting thing about H.L. Mencken is that he was also a conservative, but he was an atheist conservative. And needless to say, you don't see a lot of those uh, that, in, the, it, in the Republican Party anymore now. No, They're not allowed. <laughs> Mencken had long criticized the South. Um, yeah. for many things. And he actually leaves Dayton, Tennessee early because he thinks it's going to all be a big nothing. Then he's mm -hmm. mad at himself because he's covering it from afar. But it wasn't just him. The nation dubbed it Tennessee versus civilization. I mean, the New, York, New York Times called the people in Dayton, Tennessee cranks and freaks. I mean, it was mm -hmm. it was hostile coverage. So what was the of, outcome of the, of the case? Though? So the outcome of the case, which we knew this, but Scopes was found guilty of with a little fine. And they wanted that because they wanted to appeal, right? They wanted to test the constitutionality of the law in the first place, right? But so the actual outcome of the case was not the story. It's it's more how it how the narrative changed after that. So the intent, the criticism was so intense of fundamentalists that they kind of went underground. People that wrote that day, intellectuals and people like Minkin that wrote at that time said, oh, fundamentalism died today. It didn't die. It went underground, created its own network of private colleges and private universities, one named William Jennings Bryan College that opens five years later in Dayton, Tennessee. Um, so it says we can't, this, this majoritarianism that we thought we could impose certain things in the public school system, if that doesn't work, we will just build our own kind of network, focus on our religious faith, not worldly concerns, and and. People who were not paying attention didn't see how expansive that world was becoming mm -hmm. and how cohesive and how ripe it could be in time for politicization. And it certainly played into the, the racial aspect of, of the Southern strategy later because a lot of these schools that were established after scopes, they were racially segregated. And then in the um, after Brown versus Board of Education was handed down, you know, which said that mm -hmm. the Supreme Court case that said that you couldn't have segregated public schooling, that a lot of white Southern segregationist supporters began transferring their children into these pre-established Christian day schools. They um, did. And then, and they also then that later... Them. Yeah, and then that yeah. then that later was a key component in in getting some you know segregationist supporters into the Republican Party because during the Carter administration you had the the IRS said if you're going to have private segregated schools that's where you're going to lose your tax exempt status and that was kind of a really a galvanizing thing for a lot of of people like Jerry Falwell, for instance. You want to talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, I can say, I'll say this. What's interesting, I mean, it is all connected in lots of ways. The way I'm sure that all, the world, political world we live in now will look 
20 years from now, we'll draw all kinds of connections to things happening now. But the network of kind of private Christian spaces, whether it's universities, it was K through 12 schools, popular culture, everything, radio stations, television stations eventually build up Christian bookstores. I mean, the whole kind of move, pop culture movement does create a really kind of self-segregating religious space. Now, when integration hits the courts and people are upset about their child being bused in far spaces or they are anxious about integration and what it's going to look like in their community, people sought out private schools. And if those private schools were religious-based schools and they could afford to go there, they did. They also created new schools. And then in some places, like Virginia, they eliminated compulsory school attendance. And so you see the advent of homeschooling, of the homeschool movement, and it really taking off. And some of that were people who were, it's not the only reason homeschooling takes off, but that effort does pick up when people are trying to avoid their children attending integrated schools. And so there's a collision right there of this kind of religious self kind of, I don't know, withdrawal or fundamentalist kind of going underground and civil rights movements. Like they come into collision in the schools, right? And then what policies we set up for schools, whether it's going to be prayer in school, whether they're going to have tax exempt status, all of those things that are getting debated in the 70s galvanize that community dramatically, even though sometimes people are there for different reasons. But those issues affected private schools in ways and, and, and even funding for those, you know, the Supreme Court start in Lemon Plaza, in that Lemon versus Kurtzman, that Lemon test where they say, will religion has to be out of public schools to a degree that it doesn't have to be basically micromanaged by the courts. So if, if it's funding for something that is at a school, at a private school, but is a secular in its purpose, federal government's helping with transportation, something like that. Um, but if it's anything of more depth that the court's going to have to regulate, then the court says we're out, you know. And so all of that starts to really shift how these schools are going to financially self-support and just how strict the government is being about separation of church state. We see several decisions of in this, during Carter's time. Now, this all dovetails at the exact same time as the Southern, I'll say it quickly, Southern Baptist Convention really shift. The Baptist Church primarily in the South, had been a, for most of its history, had been very independent, no hierarchy, soul competency, personal relationship with God, didn't need this high church, you know. Or you, you could even call it anti-clerical in a lot Absolutely. of ways. Absolutely. And the Southern Baptist Church had split from the Baptist Church nationally over the issue of slavery. It had. Um, it has that history. But the the day-to-day -day politics of it were very much not coordinated to the degree that they're 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 going to become. So in nineteen in the early nineteen seventies, two leaders in the Southern Baptist Convention, they're not really leaders yet, they're young at that time, but um Paige Patterson and Paul Pressler meet and decide that the moderate Baptists <laughs> need to go, that they are being too passive about all these changes in American life, right? And so 
They hatch a plan to get a fundamentalist elected as head of the Southern Baptist Convention in 1979. And when I say hatch a plan, they really walkie talkies, like we're going to talk up this candidate because when the members who are chosen by their churches to attend the Southern Baptist Convention attend, no one ever campaigned. It was kind of like people mm-hmm. just followed their kind of heart on who they thought would be a good leader. It was not formal politics. And these guys orchest- you know, orchestrated that and they are successful. And then you start to see that the president, of the, S- the fundamentalist president of the SBC appoints fundamentalists to the committee on committees, which then appoint fundamentalists to the other committees. And slowly over the next decade, the SBC becomes something very different. Kicks, women are kicked out of seminary. It is there. It's codified. You know, the sub- doctrine of wifely submission is recodified into the SBC rule book per se. And things pretty dramatically change in politicians and political leaders, build relationships, the SBC and the SBC goes after those relationships too. That's definitely a two way yeah. Well, and they also changed the the church's position on abortion. They do. Were there actual Republican elected or consultant people that were involved in this takeover? To no, 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 no. This was totally an internal phenomenon. Mm-hmm. But what it does is that it is because of the changes in the secular world, right, in the public landscape that is what upset mm-hmm. these young fundamentalists to think that their or their denomination should become more proactive and take positions on these issues in a really dramatic fashion. And they feel like the moderates in there are just saying, just let everybody do their thing. That's not our concern. Right. Mm-hmm. And they're tired of that. They want to be proactive. They don't they, they do. And so that fundamentalist takeover though and the fact that the fundamentalists become so strict in what the interpretations are and because they start challenging members to vote, to pass out voter guides, to get active and engaged. This is the Christian position on X. Exactly. Uh, to the point of this is who you should vote for. Guys. If you want, if you are a Christian. Correct. If yeah. you are a Christian, if you're a member of this church. Um, mm-hmm. And they did lose a lot of moderate members that left or felt exiled and purged from the organization, but they also started really affecting things in the ballot box. They get so, ex- I mean, they become kind of so enamored with their ability to influence the elections. They think about maybe they could run their own person, right? Yeah. And they run Pat Robinson. And then what they realize at that, because they were really mad at Reagan. They, they were really mad at Carter they thought he was one of them and then they were like no you're not and then reagan they felt like paid a lot of lip service to them but by the end of his second term they're frustrated they just feel like he said a lot but didn't do a lot so they're like we're gonna run our own person and then when they realize this is super important when they realize that they're not that big in number to run their own and win a republican nomination or independent candidate like pat robertson then some of these southern evangelical leaders say okay Look, we don't need a litmus test on the candidate. We don't care what their personal background is. We just need them to do the things we want them to do. And that's so critical because I remember one of the questions I get asked the most when we do all this polling on religious voters is people are like, well, surely the Southern Baptists are not going to vote for Mitt Romney. He's a Mormon. They, they said for years and that Mormon was a cult. I'm like, they're going to vote for him. And he surely they will not vote 
for Donald Trump, you know, he's been divorced multiple times, just he, he doesn't have a history with the church, different personal choices and scandals. Yes, they are. And it's and not because people yeah. are always thinking it's like hypocritical and I mean, fine to look at it that way if they want to. But I'm just telling you, it didn't start with those two candidates when evangelical leaders started saying it's about who does the things we want them. They're politicos. It's like, I don't care if you're of our, whatever, if you'll do, if you'll side with us on these things, if you'll point the right people to the bench, if you'll rule, issue an executive order on this, we got your back. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And then they, there was also a big focus among the fundamentalists on on missionary work inside the United States. And so you had this rapid expansion of Southern Protestantism outside of the South. So like Southern California was a huge uh, area they focused on, but they focused a lot on the, on the Midwest and, and also did try to encourage people in other denominations to say, look, you may not agree with us on all the particular doctrines here, but let's realize who our common enemy here. And that is That's people a who super believe in religious point. pluralism uh, or and non-Christians. Uh, that's, a, that's a super important point because the cross-denominational unity that gets built. I mean, I grew up Catholic in a very Baptist little town in Louisiana. That Catholic versus Baptist thing was serious. And over the course of my lifetime, it just, it just disappeared. It, it was like an issue. And then it just disappeared. And remember, Catholics had been such a big part of, of course, JFK's coalition. So one of the things that happens as a result of the organizing over the equal right, anti the anti equal rights organizing and the per school issues is that started to see some cross denominational kind of support, and that you start to see this kind of rise of the Christian right, which is more than just one denomination, and it's a pretty pretty amazing phenomenon to think about how many denominations kind of come together under this slogan of kind of family values. Honestly, it's under the campaign of George W. Bush after Clinton kind of starts to pick up some votes in the South. And some of Bush's strategists say, one thing we need to do is we need to put, we need more religious voters. We need to put some stuff on state. We need to put some amendments to state constitutions on the ballot to yep. get people to come out on particularly the issue of gay marriage, right? And banning gay marriage. So even those those pockets of evangelicals that still just kind of hadn't shown up in the numbers they wanted at the voting booth, yeah. used some issues that were very important to those organizations and those communities to get them to show up. Um, yeah. And that really solidified that kind of the red South. Over the course of the three issues, the like playing to race, playing towards kind of traditional gender roles, anti-feminism, and playing towards kind of a religious kind of Christian nationalism. Mm -hmm. the, the Republican Party kind of it won over the South at the national level, but all that trickled all the way down over those decades as a strong Republican infrastructure is built and then becomes dominant at the state yeah. and even local level South, which the Democratic yeah. Party had not had to contend with and is still trying to recover. Yeah, um, and well, and it... And it changed who the Republican electorate is quite a bit. So before the Southern strategy, before it came to its full fruition, kind of in George W. Bush, you had people who had post-graduate degrees. They 
in, for a long time actually were Republican. Mm-hmm. Um, and the same thing was true of, of Asian Americans, actually. A majority of them voted for Republicans. But over time, as these different elements of, as you know, as you're talking about, the, the idea of traditional gender norms, Christian nationalism and sort of white, soft white ethno-nationalism, they kind of drove out a lot of people who were less religious or less Christian, not white. And so that's kind of what's happened. Uh, the Republican Party became a different party because of the white conservatives. We, and so, we can measure these things. And we can, I mean, like yeah. we can. I mean, we measure scales of racial resentment, what people say about their own attitudes about this, modern sexism, which is another mm-hmm. scale of questions, a Christian nationalism scale. And we do this um, in this book. We do it. And among white voters falling into one of those three categories, kind of above the norm, accounts for about 95 percent of Trump's vote. Mm-hmm. It's imp- I, But I do need to say this. It's really important. So in the South, there's a lot. There's a significant number of white voters who are all three of those things. They test high on all three. They express racial resentment, modern sexism, women too, and kind of a Christian nationalism. But most people are two of three or one of three. It's why it takes all three. It kind of takes hitting at all three. We sometimes assume, well, if you're particularly critics, love to make things worse by going, oh, well, they're all just a bunch of racists. They're all just a bunch of... And the truth is, is there are some people who express those feelings, but there's a lot of people that are one and not the other. Yeah. Um, and you, and that's one of the reasons that the stances over time in the Republican Party have to shift. Yeah. Shift, and they bring in, yeah, some, some of the Western Republicans the didn't other. come on the issue of segregation and civil rights angst. Mm-hmm. They came on issues related more to family values. Yeah, and wants is important, I think. Yeah, and we're and and we're seeing that in the, yeah in the present day where you've got this kind of emerging contingency of people that were calling themselves the intellectual dark web for a while, and they most of them are not religious. Um, you've got Joe Rogan, you know, he's out. He says he's an atheist. You've got Dave Rubin, who for a long time was an atheist activist. And and you've got other people, Brett Weinstein and others who, again, they, they have no particular interest in Christian nationalism, but what they do have an interest is, is some of the other things. Right now, a big one is anti-feminism. And you're seeing that also with the rise of a lot of uh, far-right Hispanics and you know evangelical Hispanics. And there is a big effort among a, a lot of the religious right currently now to try to convert a lot of black Christians and get them into Christian nationalism and, and use anti-feminism as a, as a tool for them. Yes. I mean, our highest percentages of people who express modern sexism. And again, it's what people say about themselves, what they say about themselves. It is mo- the highest numbers are among white males, higher in the South than outside of the South, really high among white women also in the South and very small among African-Americans, though a little bit more among men, these particular questions. But it, and, and among Latinos, it's not as high as whites, but there's definitely among women and men. Those distinctions are, are significant because when we have elections that are as close as our elections are in terms of the states that go this way or that way by a couple points, that's all that you need. That's all that you matter. That all, that's all that matters. So sometimes I think sometimes pundits, they're like, oh, well, how many people could that really be that they're going to target to do this? But, you know, a, a couple of points 
is a big deal when elections are so close. It's important to kind of see that not that nuance, but also to realize, yes, pe- Americans did sort themselves over time. And it took time. Republican feminists, for example, they stuck with the Republican Party for a while, thinking like this might, like the next administration might change or like, how do we, they didn't want to leave their party. They were sad their party left them, they felt like. They felt maybe they could bring it back, right? So it takes a while, but over time they do sort. And that makes the Republican Party base a very different, different thing because of those choices to win those Southern voters the party at large. Well, so we've got a live stream question from an audience member named Janice Huffman. And her question is, how do you think evangelicals embrace of Trump will change Christianity in America? And I would maybe add that one of the other interesting things that we're seeing is that because a lot of white Americans are leaving fundamentalist religion that the fundamentalist religions just by default are becoming more minority. And we're seeing that to some degree with the Southern Baptist Convention recently. You want to talk about some of these developments a bit? Like it's kind of, things are pulling in multiple directions currently, it seems like. There are. I mean, Trump's success with evangelicals did not surprise me, just because of like the history that I said about Will he just simply do the things we've asked to do that we our community wants him to do? We don't care who the messenger is, right? Who's the who's the actor in it? I think so. I don't think that his candidacy or his administration that way changes Christianity. But I think what Trump has done to kind of the polarization within how intolerable opponents of Trump find him have pushed some churches to kind of a breaking point and feeling like they've got to feel like some are going back underground a little bit. Like this is a mess. This is dividing our congregation. I feel like others are doubling down and in both directions, you've seen churches decide to take a stand against Trump. There's an organization, you know, Christians against Christian nationalism that has really become activated and organized. And then you see others that are, organized even more so to kind of a a far right he's it's it's like he's thrown kind of thrown a wrench in it and and we're gonna i think there's gonna be movement in every single direction underground more engaged to the right and then a rejection of that also at the same time and i don't know where it's gonna fall i mean the southern bat the southern baptist convention this year the most kind of fundamentalist candidates did not win, nor did the progressive. Turns out when you have a runoff, kind of the guy who was slightly less fundamentalist, just slightly less, who ended up being successful. And I just wrote a piece about that because it reminded me of, it's kind of a warning to me about 2024 because the Republican primaries are don't do a runoff. They are winner take most for for most of them. So you can get 37% if there's a crowded field, 32% crowded field, and you can get most of the electors. And in the South, because the Southern states are giving that tend to go Republican, the general election, the Republican party gives them a ton of bonus delegates to the primaries, to the bonus delegates for the convention. And because the Southern states put theirs so early on the calendar, that 30% 
that a Trump-like candidate could win in the South can be enough to not only take most of the delegates in the state, but then to get such a big lead in the delegate in the states for the national convention that it can be, and it, the only way to beat it is if everyone else gets on the same page behind one candidate, right? Happened in the Southern Baptist convention. It's like the people who Mm -hmm. didn't want the most extreme guy. No, they went for, yeah, they got together with the, when they're, when the slightly more moderate made the runoff and said, we'll support him. Right. Yeah. Um, but you don't have that option in those primary kind of systems. So I think some stuff is changing. I think there's fractures within the Southern kind of evangelical church. I, mm-hmm. I worry our politics don't set us up for nuance, our, yeah. our systems, our voting processes. And that's what makes me concerned. Yeah. Well, this has been a great discussion. Let me just ask you one last question. Sure. Um, and that is, I think there is a, a temptation for a lot of people to not be as interested in history because they think it's over. It doesn't matter. But I think, and you can tell me whether you agree with this or not, but the idea of we're seeing so much denial of the COVID-19 pandemic right now in the South. Lots of people in the majority in many states are not getting vaccinated. And like when former President Trump had a rally in Alabama the other day, he was booed by the crowd for recommending to them that they get vaccinated. Do you think that this is a manifestation of the things that you were writing about and shows that mm. it's continuous? I will tell in this way. So we did. I didn't say as much about this, but. The this kind of long Southern strategy was not just about the positions that strategists within the Republican Party and the candidates that got the nomination took. It was about the style of politics that they embraced. That quotation from Feldman, South didn't come, the Republican Party became Southern. One party politics that dominated the South through most of its history was not a real contest of ideas. It was a contest of personalities and kind of political entertainment. The region has long had large rallies, right? The politicians, tent revival-like, a, a, an absolute, an absolutism in the political rhetoric, right? You're either for it or you're against it. An us versus them kind of culture that existed. I mean, that is, in a sense, what Jim Crow was, us versus them, on one side or the other. All of that dynamic had already been there. It always shows up when you have one-party domination, right? Which is actually not good for politics at all, because you don't have a contest of real ideas and policy reform. And so the Republican Party had to embrace a little bit of that. I mean, the large rallies that they had for Goldwater in 64 and launched as Operation Dixie. It was supposed to be a few campaign stops to the South. They roll out massive rallies with 100 young women in Alabama and Mobile in white dresses to greet him, a pageantry of sorts. That was the style and it was a, you're either on our team or you're on the other team. And there's kind of a a loyalty or a kind of rivalry dynamic that is set up and it becomes part of people's identity. And what I see now, I mean, there's always been people that distrustful vaccines, but it was a very small group of people. What I see now is, is, is some kind of 
rivalry and identity issue related to it, which is I have been, I'm on this side. And if I go get vaccinated, and this is just my opinion, I've not, I've not polled or done scholarship on this, but if I go get vaccinated, then somehow that is siding with the other team. And they've so yeah. demonized that other team that they just I'm can't giving in to the atheist to liberals. Um, yeah, I, I'm, yeah, they just can't bring themselves to do it. Mm-hmm. One thing we do know, some research shows that people have done is that once you know someone close who's passed, I know we always journalists, you know, the stories when someone has lost a loved one and still won't get vaccinated. But we've seen that when people know someone, it does become kind of real at a different place. And we do see vaccination numbers. They have really ticked up in Arkansas. So some things do cut through that. But when it's an abstraction, when mm-hmm. it's something you're like, isn't happening to people right around you, you think, it's really hard for those people to break that psychological attachment to the us versus them. Yeah. And it's hard to appeal outside of that identity politics. Because, I mean, that's the that's something that which is kind of interesting as a dynamic. You constantly see Southern Republicans complain about liberals and their identity politics, but their entire political structure is about white Christian identity politics. It is. I mean, I would, I would argue that a certain wing of the Republican party is the one who really launches those identity politics. And they do so right as African-American voters flock to the democratic party. That that's your identity right? To white Southern voters, or is this your identity, right? And the problem we tend to look at, we tend to always go, what, well, you know, this is so irrational, these like poor, you know, why are people voting against their economic self-interest, right? That's the question always about the South. But they're, it's not, they're rational identity voters. They're not rational economic voters. For some people in the South, the economic situation is just really never going to change very much. And they don't look at government as something that's going to Help you know, them. do that. They don't. And, and there's, there's also a, because people did not always have means and access in rural parts of the South, you know, there's a culture of not going to the doctor. There's not a culture of preventative medicine in certain places. It's like you go as a last resort. So they don't have a primary care doctor. Um, and they don't kind of think about these preventative kind of things. Now they'll yeah. go do vaccinations if they need to for mandate, because there's mandates to send their kid to public school. Or their job. Or their job. They'll cross that bridge when they come to it, but they do. They cross the bridge when they come to it. They don't go to it, right? Mm -hmm. That culture has been there a long time. And so when you add that with kind of the identity issues that have been kind of co-opted related to vaccines, it's kind of a ripe environment Mm -hmm. um, for the weaponization of this current public health crisis. Yeah. Well, and it's it's too bad. And I, you know, I, I wish we had more time to talk about all this. This has been a great conversation. I always Thank like talking you. to you. But I yeah, we're it. we're gonna have to wrap it oh, up. Yeah. Here. So so yes, the guest today has been Angie Maxwell, and she's an associate professor at the University of Arkansas. She's on Twitter. Her username. I'm gonna spell it out for the audio listeners. It's A N G I E Maxwell number one so just the number and you also have your own website masonjarpolitics.com right that's right okay cool and then i'm gonna just briefly put the book on the screen so everybody can see that that. the full title of the book is the long southern strategy how chasing white voters in the south changed american politics 
appreciate you being here. Thank today. you so much, Matt. Appreciate it. Appreciate a thorough conversation. Thank you. Thanks for listening today. Theory of Change is made possible thanks to people like you. If you liked what you heard today, please be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and leave a nice review. That actually is really helpful. And if you really want to support the show, please click on one of the donate links that are in the show notes. High quality content doesn't create itself, so you can really do something great from my standpoint by showing financial support. Theory of Change is part of the Flux Media Network. We're a new media organization providing in-depth podcasts and articles about politics, religion, media, and technology. The website address is flux.community. And if you'd like to visit the Theory of Change section, just go to theoryofchange.show and you'll go right to the episode archives. I'm Matthew Sheffield. Let's do this again.